Hi, my name is Bill, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Those of you who are here for the fiberglass convention, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> also, the capacity is 120, so those over here got to leave. <laughs> we ought to do this in shifts or something like that. I'm very happy to uh, see that some of you can get up early in the morning and be here. I know some of you had to travel long distances. Um, and you'll have to excuse me until about 11 o'clock, which is 9 o'clock my time, which is when I start functioning a little. Well, I can't do it. Nothing I can do about it. So you'll have to be very quiet, and we'll try to, uh, I'll try to talk as best I can into the microphone when that helps. However, the holder for the microphone is broken. So that doesn't assist it much. That better? All right, I'll try. Um, First, I want to thank you all for being here, and uh, of course, for the people who did so much work in arranging this weekend uh, uh, for inviting me. Um, I know that uh, it's easy, in a way, to just come here and uh, sit down and have somebody speak to you, whatever it is, and yet uh, there are people who spent a lot of time and long hours arranging this, uh, or any time of event. Uh, um, we call it service, uh, they call it serving themselves by serving others, and uh, uh, the people who have done that really uh, uh, have to be appreciated by us. Uh, while they get a lot out of it, uh, it's uh, important for us to acknowledge them, and I think that before we even get started, we should uh, give a round of applause to the uh, committee. have a feeling that one of these days I'm going to turn up in some town somewhere and nobody's going to be there and uh, it'll either be the wrong time or uh, as how often happens uh, you know they don't know what to expect or who to expect and uh, uh, Jean picked me up and expected she was told it was uh, some short guy that looked like Gregory Peck <laughs> the second part was correct but uh, I uh, I went to um, was meeting a person who had never met me before, and I and she said, well, what do you look like? I said, like Gregory Peck. <laughs> and uh, we were meeting in this restaurant, and when I got there, uh, uh, of course, that's where OA people always meet, you know. <laughs> and I, uh, I asked for this person, and uh, she was already there, and I went to the table, and uh, she said, uh, you know, being kind of picking up on it, she says, why you do look like Gregory Peck. And I said, no, I am Gregory Peck. I look like Bill, you know. <laughs> so uh, I, uh, I hope you don't mind my ego getting in the way um, uh, of that. I really am uh, happy to share with you. It's uh, our first time in Indiana. I haven't even changed planes here before. Uh, and uh, I have uh, spoken probably in, I think it's something like 40 three or 44 states uh, so far, and about uh, 10 times in Canada, and uh, also speaking at OA meetings in uh, Ireland and England and uh, Paris, Amsterdam, Germany several times, and Israel. Uh, it's, uh, it's nice to know, and it's wonderful to be in places where you meet OA people and get to share, and they get to share with you. Uh, and what's important for me about uh, being at places like this uh, is that uh, there was a time in my life that uh, I could uh, put in my car everybody who ever wanted to listen to me, and I had a two-seater. <laughs> and the other person was strapped in and the door was locked, so they couldn't get out. Um, and I think... What's really wonderful about it is not that I could uh, do this, but that anybody could do this. That any one of us uh, can uh, come from our world in which most of us have grown up, that is a world of uh, a lot of pain, a lot of low self-esteem, a world in which, uh, wherein uh, uh, we never had anybody ever listen to us. Even those of us who talked, uh, we usually fit into two categories, those who have given up talking because nobody listened to us, or those who talk a lot and fast with the hope that if we say enough, somebody will listen to us, uh, and uh, what usually happens, of course, is 
we always get the feeling that there's nobody out there for us. And to be able to have this opportunity to share with people uh, around the world and to know that uh, somebody's out there listening to you. And whether it is a large group like this or sometimes just my sponsor, to me that's the greatest value in sponsoring is that there is somebody out there who uh, is not getting paid, who is not obligated, and who is willing to be there for me and listen to me um, and accept me just the way I am and doesn't judge what I'm saying and how it uh, fits into their life. But the mere fact that uh, we can share with each other enhances their life. Uh, Martin Buber, who is a great uh, philosopher, uh, died uh, not too long ago, uh, wrote a lot about relationships in uh, his, his book uh, called I and Thou is probably the greatest book ever written on relationships. And in that, he says that every conversation should be, should serve the purpose of enhancing the other's life and enhancing your own. Uh, and it really goes into what our program tells us that not only should it, but it in fact does. That every time you communicate to somebody, either by saying something or just listening to them, uh, something happens. And it's not explosions or great moments. It's just you get to feel good. Um, I was reading something uh, in my room before I got here that somebody had written in a way, uh, talking about uh, uh, what they get out of the program and what the program means to them and uh, talking a little bit about feelings. And I think uh, if there's anything I want to share with you, it's about feelings. And she was writing about losing weight, of course, and what she came here. She says, after all, that's what I came here for. And I think we all think that's what we came here for. We came here to lose weight. And the truth is we didn't come here to lose weight. We came here because we thought losing weight would help us feel good. And the sad thing is that when we lose weight, we don't feel any better. Alcoholics who stop drinking feel good just because they stop drinking. Uh, I think most of the anonymous programs, the people get to feel good just because they stop doing something. Uh, even in Al-Anon, which probably one of the best of the anonymous programs, if not the best, when they stop uh, trying to run other people's lives, when they tr stop buying into other people's uh, sicknesses or symptoms, uh, they get to feel good. When I'm fat, I feel bad. When I'm thin, I still feel bad. And therein lies the big difference. We all come with this wonderful expectation that if we only lost weight, uh, we would feel better. And what we do when we lose weight is we feel better a little bit for a short time. And eventually, uh, all we get to feel good about is uh, that moment in the morning when we get dressed and we look in the mirror and we see that we're not uh, what we used to look like and the stomach isn't hanging over and uh, the breaths are not hanging down, and uh, the uh, rear end is not sticking out, and uh, we can uh, bend over and uh, pick something up off the floor, and uh, we go to the closet and we put on a size that uh, is reasonable, and we feel good. And we'll get dressed and we look in the mirror and we admire ourselves, uh, thinking that uh, everybody's going to notice us. And then when we get in the car, we find out nobody notices us. As a matter of fact, they noticed us a lot more when we were fat than when we were thin. And we don't get to feel good anymore. And the traffic doesn't divide and say, oh, here comes so-and-so, lost weight. You know. <laughs> uh, and nobody uh, looks at you with, with, with love and affection and appreciation of you in the morning. And uh, uh, husbands and wives and children don't say, my God, you look so fantastic this morning. I can't believe what you've done with your life. You know, uh, uh, everything's changed since you lost your weight. Nobody says that, but if you're drunk, they sure do. 
If you're an alcoholic and stop drinking, everything changes just because you stopped drinking. And in a way, it's so much harder for the alcoholic because uh, he can get by or she can get by just by stopping drinking. And it usually takes them about 10 years of not drinking before they realize nothing much has changed. That uh, pat on the back because they haven't had a drink for so many years, it just seems to fade. And nobody cares. We learned that in about two weeks. Uh, you come to this program and you start losing weight right away. And two weeks down the line, you've lost five or eight pounds or whatever it is. And uh, nobody says a word. And you keep on looking around for that stroke or that admiration. And uh, nobody notices that you're not uh, covered with breadcrumbs uh, when you're watching television or... Uh, uh, that your clothes are a little loose on you. And you, so you go around trying to buy it, you know, and you say, hey, do you notice how much weight I'm losing? And uh, he uh, puts down his beer can and turns away from the basketball game for a moment, and he says, oh, yeah, and uh, that's it. <laughs> and uh, pretty soon when a lot of weight comes off uh, and you're really getting down there and thin uh, and you have to go buy clothes, uh, different size and you really feel good about it you buy this sharp outfit and you come home expecting everybody to notice how terrific because you're wearing white for the first time and uh, not black which used to hide you and nobody notices and you just say what's the use and it's, it, it, there's something to be said about that because really what we have done is we've lost weight so others would admire us we have this uh, strange notion that uh, the answer to low self-esteem is others liking us. It's as if we put ourselves up to a vote. And if everybody acknowledges us and votes for us being okay, we get to feel good. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen. And so what we do is we go back to eating because we do get noticed that way. And we'd rather get bad strokes or negative strokes, if you call them or whatever. We'd buy any stroke any way we can. If we can't get it for being thin, we'll get it for, for breaking our, quote, abstinence or the diet or whatever it is. And then the guy turns around and says to you, hey, I thought you were on some kind of a diet. You know, look at how you're eating. It's a good stroke. He noticed you, didn't he? But the fact that you didn't eat uh, uh, during a period of time you were losing weight didn't get you much attention. And, of course, that's the way the world is out there. Uh, most people do not get noticed because they drive within the speed limit. Nobody <laughs> says something to you because you are work on time. Be a little late and you'll see all the attention you get. And nobody notices the people who just function well. Uh, I remember when I graduated from high school, uh, there was only one award I got and that was uh, never missing a class. And. Uh, I just thought that was so terrific. I didn't realize that I hadn't missed the classes because I was there and I missed them all the time. I didn't know what the hell was going on. Uh, but uh, that was the only time I ever got a stroke uh, in, at that period of my life was just being there. And I just thought everybody was there and nobody got any kind of strokes for that. We are uh, people who live in a great void. There's a great emptiness in our lives. And the emptiness only seems to get filled up uh, in a ways we've learned. And it's, a, it's an insatiable need to fill ourselves up. And the more we need, the less we're filled. And we try it uh, as little children. We play kinds of games. And if the game works, we keep doing the game. And so we've learned a lot of uh, games to fill ourselves up. And one of the games is eating. Eating is such a wonderful way to fill yourself up. It fills yourself up with a feeling when you eat, for the few moments that uh, you eat. Prior to eating, it fills yourself up with, uh, you fill yourself up with uh, the anticipation of the eating, and you think about it a lot. I, uh, I've often thought uh, that the pro a lot of the problem with OA is uh, that first step where we say we're powerless over food is not food that we're powerless over. It's I call the process of eating. If we would say we're powerless over eating or compulsive eating, uh, <clears throat> that would be more appropriate. Because it's not food that's the problem. It's the compulsion. It's the, 
everything that's surrounded with eating. Sometimes we're surrounded with uh, the thoughts of shopping. Shopping is a big uh, filler-upper of time. Cooking, uh, preparing, thinking about it, all these things. As a matter of fact, uh, the problem with eating is over with so fast uh, that we've got to eat again soon in order to keep it going. Uh, and then, of course, it serves the added purpose of that when we eat, we get to look bad. I have no doubt that uh, I would have been a compulsive eater even if I wasn't fat. It's uh, it just that the fat was the added bonus. See, I got to feel dealing with the, with the process of eating, and then I got to feel with the result of the eating, that is, I was fat, and people got to, I thought, look at me and say, see, look at how fat that guy is walking down the street. Uh, the trouble was that, uh, well, I thought they were looking at me, they thought I was looking at them, and uh, none of us seemed to communicate. As I said, the real reason we're here is not to be thin, uh, but to feel the way we think we would feel if we were thin. We feel good. We feel good about ourselves, other people would admire us, we feel good about admiration, uh, we get to uh, people to be around us, we get friends and stuff like that, uh, and we feel good about that. And therefore, people who have who do not feel good use this program in order to feel good. Except uh, most of the part, most of the time, they latch on to the wrong part of it. We have so much uh, taken things out of context in this program and in the big book. Uh, for instance, we talk about this as being a threefold illness, uh, spiritual, emotional, and physical. And somehow uh, we think that uh, we have to work hard at the physical, uh, and that if we work at the physical, the emotional, that is, we get to feel better, will take place. And if the emotional takes place, uh, we'll then go to church or synagogues or temples or whatever it is more often because we like to be seen, and in that process we'll become, quote, spiritual. And uh, what we're talking about is a religious context, which is not how the program uh, deals with it. In our program, we have a book called The Big Book, which is our text dealing with uh, our lives. And the only thing that the book talks about is the spiritual, quote, illness. It tells us there that when the spiritual malady is overcome, then we'll, we'll, we will change uh, emotionally and physically, automatically. Somehow we keep on wanting to push that aside and do it reverse, as we always do things ass backwards. Instead of working on the spiritual so that the emotional and physical will clear up, we work on the physical so that the emotional and spiritual will clear up. Sounds good, except it does what we've always done, and we get to feel bad rather than good. Um, some time ago, I started to share about what seemed to me to be a program of recovery. I'd come into OA just like you, thinking just like you, doing the things that you did, except I was very fortunate uh, I was here when uh, most of you weren't, uh, and the only difference between me and you probably is longevity and a big mouth, that's it. Uh, I went from a person who spent most of his life not being able to speak to a person who felt that he has to make up for lost time. So I speak a lot, uh, and uh, I've been here a long time. I think I was the first man to come into OA who was not an AA before. I've never been an AA. I'm not an alcoholic. And I, I think I'm lucky that way because if I was an alcoholic who came here and there were some men who, a few men who were here when I first came in who were in AA, and they're still, they still don't understand that if they had ever really been in AA, they wouldn't have had, have been here in the first place. Uh, I hear people so often saying that they have to have multiple programs because they have multiple symptoms and that an AA sponsor can't understand 
their compulsive eating. And all I can tell you is that I don't need somebody to understand my illness. I need somebody to share their recovery. I'm not here to relate illnesses or to uh, uh, get people to understand that. When I went uh, through the steps, I went through with a man in AA who uh, never heard of OA and uh, didn't even know what a compulsive overeater was. And he said to me, how can we relate if, uh, if you've never been an alcoholic? And I said, it's not your drinking I want to relate to. It's your sobriety. I want what you have, not what you were was and uh, probably the first sane words I said in this program and it worked from there I think people who uh, really live in OA an AA life don't have to come to OA they may want to come because it's uh, they feel a little more comfortable or it's enjoyable or it's another meeting but I walk into AA meetings around the world and I speak at AA meetings and AA conventions and I've never been an alcoholic and I talk about my program, and I've been at, uh, spoken at AA meetings, and by the time I was done, they thought I was an alcoholic uh, because I introduced myself. They said, my name is Bill, and I'm recovered, and I work, work and live a 12-step program. And, that's, and they think I'm an alcoholic, and I can share my life without even mentioning weight. I can just share what I've been and what I've done. And uh, I can say that in some day, uh, 14 and a half years ago, I came to this 12-step program and go on from there and talk about the steps of my recovery and they'll think I'm an alcoholic because nothing's different. I don't have to go into uh, what I was in the sense of the things I did because that's not what I was. What I was was the thing, I, what the, was the person I was. Uh, we, are, we all have one thing in common that is, we have a symptom, whatever it is. We have a state of mind that is the same. And we have a great spiritual emptiness. And uh, the way the program works is we fill up our emptiness. We get to feel good about ourselves. And the symptoms disappear. We don't have to worry about them. I guess I've been speaking not in, Indianap in Indiana, but in the Midwest uh, for probably about uh, uh, 10 years or 11 years. I remember the first time I came to the Midwest was to Chicago, and uh, I wanted to see if there was an OA meeting there, and there was one that had disbanded. And I called the person up, and I got to speak. I got some people together and spoke. And uh, I've seen OA grow from... 200 meetings, most of them centered in Los Angeles area, Southern California, to about 7,000 meetings in 36 countries. Uh, it's, uh, I still get a kick out of getting letters from uh, Australia or South Africa or Japan. Uh, I ran into a, a woman from uh, Japan at a meeting, and who are now sponsored by mail, who lives in Tokyo, and uh, uh, she had heard me, and she was in Japan. They walk around with those Sony Walkman listening to OA tapes. Um, amongst them were mine. And uh, uh, it's really, uh, you get a kick out of those kind of things to see how OA has grown and how the message expands. But uh, <coughs> how far have we really come? We all began this journey to recovery with the hope that we uh, could not only stop our compulsive overeating behavior, uh, but we could further anticipate that the result of that uh, change behavior would be uh, the accomplishment of some degree of self-esteem. We all arrived in OA in generally the same condition, overweight and overwhelmed. Most of us had tried other means and methods of accomplishing a weight loss with the resultant feeling of despair when we failed to achieve or maintain our goal weight. Whether we were 100 pounds overweight or just 40 or 50, or in the case of many young people, just 10 or 15 pounds, the pain was the same. Many, if not most of us, spent a lifetime of embarrassment and humiliation and loneliness 
before we learned about OB is anonymous. To most, OA was the last strand of hope. We attended our first meeting and heard strange words. It was nothing like what we anticipated. It was almost utopian. There was cultish gibberish such as, God did it, I didn't. Let go and let God. Abstinence, sponsors, food plans, programs, babies, etc., etc., etc. For me, it not only made no sense, but it seemed only to contribute to my usual feeling of not belonging. The, quote, members seemed to be in some euphoric trance. They implauded when I would have booed. They greeted when I would have shunned. They hugged when I would have pushed away. I was not ready uh, for what appeared to be going on. I only wanted someone to tell me how fast and how much weight I was going to lose. Fourteen and a half years ago, when I first came into OA, no one seemed to be losing weight very fast, so they applauded minor achievements, at least it seemed minor to me at the time. Not gaining weight was considered a major achievement. I knew that I didn't want to just not gain weight. I wanted my weight off, and I want it off now, if not sooner. However, the truth was that I was not willing to do much of what everyone else at the meeting seemed to be doing. I was not willing to hug anyone, applaud anyone, or reach out to anyone. I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it. I didn't want to do anything to get it. My life consisted of always swimming against the stream, and I was worn out in the process. My only alternative seemed to be losing my spontaneity instead of my weight if I did what they did. I didn't want to give up my so-called gregarious personality. We call people who are gregarious uh, clowns, and that's what I was. I thought if I lost my spontaneity, no one would like me. I had to buy aff affection, if you could call what I had affection. I would grab onto anyone or anything, just tell me the price that had to be paid. But I usually ended up doing it my way, and that price I paid was being fat and lonely. After the words began to have meaning, and after I contributed a few of the aphorisms myself, there came a day of truth for me, and I believe that day comes for all of us if we stay around long enough. Whether we lose all our weight or not, the real problem was not how to lose weight, but how to keep it off. How can we maintain what we work so hard to obtain? First, I had to find out what I had obtained. The usual cure for obesity by medical definition is to eat less and exercise more. Simple. But how do we get people to do it, and once they do it and appear to succeed, why don't they continue? If we're here to lose weight, how come when we lose weight we don't do it? I cannot count the times I told myself that if I lost so much weight I would never put it back on, only to do just that. I was promised when I came into OA that this was the last stop, that I would never have to put the weight back on, Yet as time passed, I saw those abstainers fall by the wayside. The fat became thin, only to become fat again, with the additional humiliation of having broken their abstinence. Could this be what the program of AA had taught us? Why was it happening? And to this day, seems to continue to happen. Look around you. How many do you know who have lost their weight and continue to maintain that loss? And if not, why not? I'm not talking about the 90-day wonders. I'm talking about those who are around for two and five and ten years. Where are the perfect abstainers? The purpose uh, of my sharing, in part, is to address the specific points. If you can find out how to maintain sanity, how to maintain recovery, and how to recognize what that is, then perhaps the day will soon come when you and I can clearly present to the newcomer a program that achieve, achieves what it promises, amongst other things, weight loss and self-esteem forever. I know that uh, many of us would like to get it for a day or two. But the program doesn't promises, uh, promise us that. It promises us permanent recovery if we want it.
I think the, the thing that I hear the most from people is, I'm not willing. How do I get willing to do what has to be done? You know, I know that uh, many of us would like to get it for a day or two. But the program doesn't promises, uh, promise us that. It promises us permanent recovery if we want it. I think the, the thing that I hear the most from people is, I'm not willing. How do I get willing to do what has to be done? You know, we have this program that tells us. And you hear it, heard it read this morning, and you read it probably at every meeting. It says how it works. It doesn't mean how it works for some people and not for others. It doesn't say here's how it works sometimes. It says here's how it works. It doesn't work a different way for us. Now, something else may work in another way, but this works this way. And yet, when we hear how it works, it goes through one ear and out the other. It's like, oh, that's very interesting. But what do I eat today? Or how do I get to eat what I know what to eat today? And eventually, when they come around to it, they'll say, you're right, Bill, you know, i got to work the steps and so forth but I'm just not willing. Where do I get the willingness to do these things? And the only thing I can share to you is that uh, my willingness came from my pain and my recovery came from God. I think that the difference between me and others who were there when I was there, you know, 14 and a half years ago, is I guess my pain. I know of no other reason I was not smarter. I was not uh, more willing. I had nothing, nothing different about me than the others, except I was in a lot of pain. And I had tried everything else. And I'm not just talking about diet programs. I've been in and out of therapy most of my life. I've been in mental institutions two times. I have done everything. I joined every self-help group, every awareness group, you name it. I do it. I did it. I was willing to go to any length because each day was very painful. And it got so painful, I couldn't stand me anymore. I couldn't stand looking in the mirror. And when I get up in the morning, it was, why do I have to be alive? And I would have killed myself if I wasn't such a coward. And I, I was such a jerk, my feeling was that if I took a gun and blew my head apart, all I would do is cause brain damage and I wouldn't die. You know, I'd, I'd even miss there. I think that we have a choice. We can spend the rest of our lives uh, thinking what a terrible, unfair world this is and try to make it fair, which is what I did. I spent my whole life feeling this pain and thinking what I have to do is change everything out there. Every person made me feel. Those words are the most horrible words ever created in the English language. You make me feel. It makes me feel. I feel because of it or that or you or something. And I kept on trying to change it or that or you or something with this insane delusion that if I change that, I'd feel better. And the truth is that that didn't make me feel anything. I used that to justify how I felt. Because I, if I had to live with the reality, which was I felt this way anyhow, my life really would have been hopeless. Because what can I do then? It never dawned on me. That the way to get rid of the pain was not to change them there, but to change me so I don't get the pain. So what I did was uh, try to make the world uh, fair. Or we can say, yes, this is an unfair world. And from this unfairness and accepting it as being unfair, I will grow uh, not by tilting at windmills, or by living in the past, or by living in a fantasy world of the impossible future, but by getting in touch with God's power within me 
and living of myself. It is only when we are relieved of the results of our lives uh, that we have a choice. It is only when we are no longer afraid of what's going to happen because we accept that what's going to happen is better than what is. It is when we are no longer the effect of our past, like a wind-up toy each morning and gets up and plays out its program. Uh, it is only when we are relieved of our fear of the results of the past and the results of the future that we have a choice. We are here to clear away how the past reflects, affects the, the present. Because we are not ever in the present when we come into this program. We are just reflections of the past. And we can continue uh, to play it out. So I was in a lot of pain. And I thought to myself uh, that if I changed things out there, it was causing the pain, then obviously the pain would go away. And every time I changed it, I found something else. I was uh, an uneducated child, so I decided to become educated. That would change it. And when I became educated, I said, gee, I don't feel any different, so what I have to do is throw away my education. I tried that. I was lonely and had no relationships, and I knew what it was. I had to have a relationship, so I got married. So when I got married, I said, this isn't enough. I have to have a family, so I had children. I said, this isn't enough. You have to have a house, so I got a house. And I said that a wife and children in a house aren't enough. I have to get rid of it. So I got rid of it. And then I led, led a, a wonderful, exciting single life. And I said, gee, I'm going to get killed one of these days with the kind of life I'm living. So I better, it wasn't, it wasn't the marriage, it wasn't being married. It was the person I was married to. So I'll marry somebody else. And on and on and on, life was always something out there was doing it. And all of a sudden, I got to see that my life was unmanageable. That is, I had never been able to manage the things out there. And that the one thing I could manage, I never tried to manage. I never tried to change me. Because I lived with this crazy belief that what I was couldn't change. It was the things out there I had to change. See, I could change the wall, I thought. That was okay, but I couldn't change me because this wall was displeasing to me, so I would change it. And then the new wall would be displeasing after a while, and I'd keep on doing that. It wasn't until I came to this program that uh, I began to think differently. Until that time, even through therapy, it was so clear to me that the purpose of therapy was to be strong enough to change others. I really thought, I really thought that if I worked hard, I'd become very strong, you know, very uh, assertive. And in my ability to assert myself, others will change. It was like the roles would change. I remember uh, studying about transactional analysis years ago, and they talk about the parent and child. And I always saw myself as the child. And what had to happen was for me to become the parent and them to become the child and that I'd get to feel better because parents always felt better. And little did I know that parents, people who parent other people who are not, in fact, their children get to feel just as bad because it's a, a transactional game. And the purpose of all games is I'm not okay and you're not okay. Or... Uh, I used to think it was, I'm okay, you're so-so, you know. <laughs> but I only got to be okay if you weren't. That's how I thought life was. That was the only way I can get to be okay, I can get to feel good, was to make you less. And so I surrounded myself with a lifestyle that perpetuated that. I surrounded myself with people who, in my mind, were worse than me. And if they weren't, if they really were nice people and liked me anyhow, I would say to myself, they're really crazy. Why would they like me? So they've got to, something's really got to be the matter with them. 
that I would have jobs that, or, or work uh, environments that did that very same thing. Because even if I achieved something, I would think, boy, are they stupid. They think I am what I say I am. One of these days they're going to find out I'm a fraud. Regardless of all, <coughs> excuse me, all these degrees and everything, the only reason I got the degrees is because they were, they asked me the right questions, the wrong questions. If they asked me different questions, I would never have answered it, and I never would have passed. See? So I could never accept the fact that I was different, and the only way I could be that way was to change those people out there. And so I surrounded myself with all kinds of crazy people to build up my esteem. No matter how low in the gutter you get, there's always somebody lower, either in reality or, or in your mind, but it makes no difference. As long as I can find people who are worse than me, I got to be better, because I was better than them, which was better. I never thought about the fact that what I could do was change me and do something about that. <coughs> of course, I came to this program thinking that uh, <coughs> if I changed a little bit of me, just the way I looked, then everybody would react differently to me. They would say, God, look at that guy. He looks so terrific. I mean, he just looks wonderful. That's why I got little sports cards, because you can see more of me, say. <laughs> and I'd get these red, bright red and burgundy or yellow jaguars, you know, and uh, and people could see me then and they noticed me. They also noticed how I drove and I got a lot of traffic citations, you know. <laughs> Spent a lot of time, and of course I began to use that, you know, I would get these traffic tickets and uh, uh, go to jail because they would uh, accumulate warrants. I didn't have to pay these things, you know, that was a, money games are a good game that many of us play. And I didn't want to pay the warrant you know, first of all, I'd get the ticket, and then it wasn't my fault. And uh, because if the cop wasn't on that corner hiding there, or, or his, his car was, instead of being black and white, with a bright color with signs or something, I would recognize it. And they were only picking on me because I had this red Jaguar convertible or something like that. And then I didn't feel justified in paying the ticket. And then, of course, as I got three or four of them, I'd say, one of these days I have to go down and clear it up. And then my license would get revoked. And then I'd drive around for a few years uh, without the license, and I'd say, boy, you know, I'm so careful when I don't have a license. Maybe I should never get a license renewed. <laughs> because in California, they arrest you if you have warrants out and don't have a valid driver's license. And of course, eventually, I'd get arrested and go to jail and have to pay all this money for, uh, for the warrants and everything. And then I'd swear I'd never do it again. And then, of course, I did it again. Uh, <coughs> Anyhow, I don't, uh, I came to OA and I, I tried what everybody else did. Uh, I figured out that, uh, this was a great organization. It was not a diet club and food wasn't our problem. And it seemed kind of strange since food wasn't our problem. That's all people talked about was food. And, um, it wasn't a diet club, but the first thing they wanted to do was put you on a diet, except they called it a food plan. But that was okay. After all, who was I with this low self-esteem? Uh, who was I to tell others uh, what to do? So I did what they did, and of course I got what they got, which was a temporary weight loss and a lot more pain. There is nothing as painful as running out of reasons for the pain. Uh, you sit there and you can blame everything and whenever when when you have everything and then you finally lose the weight and you're still in so much pain you begin to feel that everything is hopeless and uh, the best words I guess I ever heard in this program was somebody who was leaving it my then sponsor uh, first sponsor in this program who was leaving it and he said and I said what am I gonna do and they said I don't know but maybe I'll read the big book and uh, I'd been in a program about three years at that time and never read the big book. I started to read it, but uh, it was very boring. Um, you know, uh, I, you first read about this guy from World War One. you know, I mean, that was ridiculous. Uh, 
some stockbroker from Ohio. Do you ever know anybody, you know, in right mind in Ohio? Yeah. If you're so much in your right mind, why are you here in the first place? So I listened to this guy, this stockbroker. I read that story and was just, this guy really a jerk. And uh, I put the book away and I was an alcoholic anyhow. I remember even somebody once bought me an, uh, a big book and went through the trouble to, in trying to help me of whiting out every part of the book which mentioned alcohol or alcoholism or drinking and inserted in there food, you know, eating and uh, and the whole book they went through that thing. I mean, what a tremendous job. Didn't help. And it only helped when I finally uh, got scared. I was in a lot of pain and I saw other people who had lost weight, who had been there when I was there missing out, but that's what you're supposed to get. But recovery is a sort of a difficult term. It's like, uh, you know, trying to hold air in your, in your hand or water in your hand. It's just not there. You can't pin it down. It seems to be pinned down. We pin it down by equating it to weight loss. But that's not it. And for those of you who have come here to lose weight, you're in the wrong place. You're not, there's nothing I can say, nothing in that big book that shows you how to lose weight. It doesn't have anything to do with how to stop drinking. I was at an, OA, an AA convention and I heard uh, a man who just recently died, 40 some odd years in the program, who said, if you're here to lose, to learn how to stop drinking, you're in the wrong place. But if you're here to, if you're here to learn how to live without drinking, you're in the right place. And if you're here to learn how to lose weight, there's nothing we have for you. But if you're here to learn how to live without compulsively overeating, we have a program for you. And the program is based upon the single most important thing I ever heard. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed this program. And I, uh, I am not a rarely, and I don't want to be a rarely. And I want what those people had. Those people had not only stopped drinking, but they had stopped a lot of things. And as I read those stories in the back of the big book over and over again, one thing came out from those stories. It was not that they had stopped drinking, but they had a certain character to them. These people had a way of life that seemed to jump out of the pages at me. They all seemed to have one thing in common. They had been in a lot of pain. They were now free of pain. Certainly that kind of pain anyhow. And they had a quality, a, a demeanor, a calmness to them. I wanted it. I never had that. I don't know about you, but my biggest problem was what was going on in my head. And what was going on there was a war. There was always a war going on. There were two sides, at least two, and sometimes more, battling it out for me. And it was as if I was divorced from that. It was not my mind. It was like little guys up there fighting it out. And I just, you know, like wanted to put my hands over my ears and block them out. And the way I got to block them out was by eating or doing something. It was as if I did something, it would stop it. And the thing was that it did stop it, except I had to keep on doing something instead of getting rid of them. <laughs> That's what I could have done. How to get rid of that. <coughs> How to get rid of the voices and the war. Those people didn't seem to, be have, seem to have a war in their heads anymore. And they hadn't surrendered. They just got rid of the war. And it was just a calmness, almost a boringness that existed that was going on. 
I wanted what they had. And what they had was sobriety. The dictionary definition of sobriety has nothing to do with drinking. The word sobriety means moderate, free from excess, extravagant, or exaggeration, sane or rational. Doesn't say stop drinking. In medicine, they call, call it homeostasis. Homeostasis means balance. I wanted balance in my life. I wanted just to go like this. I never seemed to go like that. I wanted something there that could help me. In addition, uh, I was told at the time that before the big book was written, the alcoholics uh, for, I think it was like 20 years before the big book was written for AA, used to use two books. One was the Bible, and the other one was a book called Sermon on the Mount by Emmett Fox. <coughs> <coughs> written over 50 years ago, both of which are not uh, OA-approved literature, by the way. <laughs> Actually, you know what OA-approved literature is? It's literature that OA prints. That's what it means. There is nothing that is not printed by OA or AA that is not approved. That's all it means. It means they approve it to print it and sell it, and it's totally appropriate. But they're not against anything, and they're not against the book Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, an incredible book considering when it was written. And uh, the big book was almost translated verbatim. Thank you. It was translated verbatim uh, from Sermon on the Mount. And in that uh, book, uh, Emmett Fox, who was many years ahead of his time, wrote about, of all things, not drinking, but eating. And if uh, compulsive eaters had found that book, Sermon on the Mount, 50 years ago, we would have written the big book just the way it was. Would have been no difference except we would have referred to eating instead of drinking. Emmett Fox talks about a new way of living, a new life a new way of approaching God and prayer and the effect it has on our lives. And he wrote uh, 50 years ago that pursuing this new way of life in greater detail, and of course, uh, being a Christian, he wrote in the Christian context, but it applies to everybody. <coughs> I find no difficulty in understanding what he says, uh, even though written in that context. He says, pursuing the same ideas in greater detail, those who are upon the new basis, this new way of thinking and relating to God, are to be free from all sorts of petty anxieties and worrying details which continue to afflict those who are not in this new way of life. He wrote 50 years ago, questions of diet, for instance, will settle themselves if one is thinking rightly, not if one is behaving rightly. A follower of the new life does not need to watch every bite that he puts into his mouth until eating becomes a burden. He eats naturally and spontaneously of the ordinary food that comes along, knowing that his habitual right thoughts will take care of his diet too. If he had been accustomed to eating more than was good for him, the fact that he now prays every day for wisdom and guidance in general would lead to his eating less. Notice he doesn't say pray for God to make you thin or God take away the, 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 the calories or God give me you know, less food or something like that or, <coughs> or stop me from vomiting or whatever it is. He says, pray for, the only thing that we can pray for and get, wisdom and guidance. He says, or if he should not be eating enough, then this kind of prayer 
would cause him to eat more until the right quantity was reached. I believe in sobriety. I believe in balance. I believe in the natural order of life. I believe that what we're here for is to achieve what we were meant to be here for, that is naturalness in our life. Compulsive eating is unnatural, as is any compulsive behavior. And the way <coughs> to stop compulsive eating is to become more in tune with God's natural order and laws. One of the ways we do it is through prayer. That helps us, not to prayer, but it, prayer is the key to getting in tune with God. Emmett Fox goes on to say, the same principle applies, applies to all the details of everyday living. And this part, especially for those of you who are into abstinence as being very important in your life, listen to this part. If you pray for yourself in the right way every day, you will find, now notice he says pray for yourself in the right way. And how do you pray for yourself? You ask God to give you strength and courage and compassion and understanding and all those things. He says if you pray for yourself in the right way every day, you will find that the minor things of life will gradually fall correctly into place of their own accord without any trouble on your part. That's almost quoted in the big book. It says these things will happen automatically without any thought or effort on your part. It just comes. That's the miracle. They got that from this part of the big of, of Emmett Fox. Contrast this with the usual method of trying to get everything right by separately organizing a thousand petty details. <coughs> and this is where pre-planning how you eat is really organizing how you eat. He said. Uh, and you will appreciate how wonderfully the new spiritual basis sets you free. If thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. This is the summation of all truth. If the eye be single, the whole body of experience shall be full of light. The eye symbolizes spiritual perception. Whatever, and this is it, whatever you give your attention to is the thing that governs your life. Attention is the key. Your free will, your ability to choose what you can keep your eye on, lies in directing your attention. Whatever you steadfastly direct your attention to will come into your life and dominate it. And if you give your attention to eating, that will dominate it. If you can give your attention to eating a certain way, that's what will dominate it. If you give your attention to not eating, that's what will dominate it. If you give your attention to being fat or thin or whatever, that's what will dominate it. But if you give your attention, <coughs> he says, if you, if you do not direct your attention consistently to anything in particular, and many people do not, then nothing in particular will come into your life except uncertainty and suspense, and you will be like a drifting log. Also, if you direct your attention to the outer world of manifestation, which was what I was doing, and everything out there was causing it, which is, in its nature, continually shifting and changing, you are bound to have unhappiness, poverty, and ill health. Whereas, if you direct your attention to God, if the glory of God comes first with you, and to express His will becomes the rule of your life, then your eye is single, and your whole body or embodiment will be full of life. And do you for one moment think that in expressing His will, that abstinence is expressing His will? or eating too much is expressing his will. What we do here, what is really, I think, the most important part of our program, is finding out what God's will is for us and doing it. And if we find it out and we do it, then our eye is on that 
not on how we look or how we appear or what people think of us or whether we lost enough weight or whether the people are going to think we look good in this size dress or that size suit or how should I eat or what I should eat, what should I eat or what shouldn't I eat. <coughs> but if we direct our eye on, into what God's will is for us, what happens? Instead of living a life of anxiety and despair, of wondering what should I do being in anxiety, and am I doing it right, and am I doing it enough, or am I doing it too much? Or the despair, which ultimately always follows, screwed up again. I'm not thin enough. I put on some weight. This doesn't 